As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. The key is just to think creatively. Like if you know something's an opportunity, but you don't think you can do it, don't stop there. Don't, don't just give up. There are all sorts of different ways to do real estate deals, to do any sort of deals. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to mention Door Devil. You know, you know what? I need to mention Door Devil. I need to mention Door Devil to you. It's not just a want. It's a need because you need this. Door Devil, quite simply, defends your home against kick-in burglary attacks. They happen frequently. There are 1.4 million homes that are broken into every year, and a lot of them are done through kick-ins. If you've got a home security system, then props to you. I'm glad you've got that, and that's important. But it doesn't prevent the bad people from kicking in your door, whether it's your front door, your back door, your side door. You need something like the Door Devil, and Door Devil is the best in the business when it comes to providing proof that it works. You can go to doordevil.com and even watch a video with Terry Bradshaw talking about it. And you can see how it works. It's a very simple product to install. But if you're not into that, then you can just hire a handy person and they can they can install it for you. Very simple. Put it inside the door frame of your front door, your back door, every door you have. And you can defend your home against the kick-in burglary attacks. It's needed. In addition, this is my brother's company. So it's near and dear to my heart. And because it's my brother's company, I'm able to offer you an exclusive discount because he was so kind to do so. You can go when you check out your uh, purchase at doordevil.com and there's going to be a little field. You enter the word best ever, no space, just one word, best, B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R, and you'll get a 20% discount on your purchase. So go to doordevil.com, go buy it, enter best ever and secure your home against kick-in burglary attacks. There are so many testimonials on the website. You can read them from police officers, from a woman who is being, uh, her house is being attacked from an enraged ex-husband and the door devil defended that attack. Uh, He didn't get in. There's like 20 different testimonials from police officers on the door devil. Go buy it. Defend your home against burglary kick-in attacks. Go to doordevil.com and enter the word best ever whenever you check out. 
and you'll get 20% off on your purchase. Best ever listeners. Hi, how's it going? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Farrellis. This is a show where we cut out the fluffy stuff and we get straight to the advice that moves your business forward. The best ever advice that moves your real estate investing business forward. And well, I hope you're having the best ever weekend. Let me just pause right there and Hope you're uh, send some good vibes to you for this Saturday. And because it's Saturday, we're doing a special segment called Situation Saturday where our best ever guest talks about a sticky situation that they were in and they tell a story on how they overcame it so that if and when you come into the situation that you'll know how to handle it. With us today, we got a previous best ever guest. How you doing? Andrew Sirius. Good. How about yourself, Joe? Hey, I'm doing well, my friend, and thanks a lot for joining us again. If you want to hear Andrew's best ever advice, then after you get done listening to this episode, go to episode 364, and the title of the episode is Be Careful, Don't Skip Your Due Diligence. Andrew is based in Kansas City, Missouri. You can say hi to him at stewardshipproperties.com. Is that right? That's it, yes. Stewardshipproperties.com. Just click the link in the show notes page. That's a lot easier. His company owns not 600, like I said last time we talked to him, but now 700 units. They have grown 100 units, and they manage their own portfolio. He's been investing for about 10, well, now we're going to say 10 and a half years, because <laughs> it's, <about, laughs> it's been about six months since the last time we talked. And again, you can hear his best ever advice at three, episode 364. And today we're going to talk about the sticky situation he was in. First, Andrew, really quickly, like 30 seconds or less, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background? Yeah, well, I started in real estate with with my dad back in Eugene, Oregon, flipping houses. He had started there back in the late 80s uh, buying campus rentals. And by the time I, I came on board, that had gotten bought up to the point where it's too expensive to really buy more of those who were flipping houses. Kind of got tired of that. Eventually, we decided we wanted to go back into buy and hold, so we moved out to the Midwest and started up shop here in Kansas City. I came out in 2011. My brother joined me six, nine months later, and we've just been buying, fixing, and uh, renting out properties ever since. All right, Andrew. What is the sticky situation you were in? Can you tell us the story? It's sort of more of a sticky opportunity, I'd say. <laughs> okay. and, and this, this would be the best story, the way to put it. We came across a very large portfolio of houses, much larger than we'd ever purchased before. In fact, that's 97 houses in this portfolio. And it certainly appeared right off the bat as it was a good deal. I mean, actually, it came in. It's very weird how we got this. this I think just kind of the broad strokes of this deal, it kind of highlights how opportunities can come at you from weird directions at times you're not really prepared for. And and you need to be ready to seize those. I mean, one of the things that you just you just never know, and you've always give you, we got to be ready to jump on them and find a way to do it because they're not necessarily going to come, you know, the next week, the next month, the next year. They just they come at random and weird times, and you've got to find a way to to put it together. This one, <laughs> it started out with a real estate agent who was looking to buy one of our houses, just a single house, because it was near a Quick Trip, and the Quick Trip wanted to expand the parking lot. So he got in touch with my brother. And started uh, basically said they were going to send a, a low offer and ignore that, you know, just counter that. So they sent us a very low offer, and and my brother was send us another offer if you want, but we're not going to counter that. And so they sent us another offer that was more legitimate. 
And my brother decided to go into full brat mode and just kind of like, nah, we, we just don't want to sell it. So we're not really interested in this. Uh, and he's like, just give us a counter. Just give us a counter. And he's like, no. So, <laughs> so they got this conversation, kind of what they what, what we did and explained to this, this commercial real estate agent that we you know buy mostly single family houses. We buy some apartments too, but a lot, a lot of single family houses kind of throughout the Kansas City area. And they talked for a little while and thought nothing of it. And then... Philip got an email from him asking if we had any interest in this portfolio of 97 houses. And I had just seen a portfolio the other day. And almost every portfolio I see of houses is, is just stuff that's in like war zones, dilapidated. It, it, they're almost always just look over like, ah, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. And I had just seen a package just about the same size that was like that. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not something we're having any interest in. And he's like, I don't know. These look like pretty good addresses. kind of right in the areas that we look, like to buy. And looked it over and it was, wow, this is this is really interesting. Apparently that agent's, I believe his cousin, who was also a real estate agent, had just got a listing and posted this notice on about this listing on Facebook or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he saw it and then brought it to us. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the weird way that this deal came across our table. And I, I know it was marketed in other ways. There were other interested buyers, but I never saw it from any other source. So... You know, deals can come at you from very weird places, to say the least. That being said, you know, this is a multi-million dollar portfolio, not something that we're normally buying. Our, our normal business strategy is to buy a house in the range of, you know, all in for forty dollars to $100,000 and get a private loan on it and then fix it up, rent it out, and then try to refinance that property at the appraised value. And since we'll have some equity in it because we're trying to buy right, We'll be able to refinance out that private loan and get a long-term loan in place. Well, you're doing that with you know forty to a hundred thousand dollars, and then you have to do ninety-seven at one time. <laughs> that that strategy doesn't exactly work. So we were kind of caught in this position where we know this deal makes sense. The seller is selling it at a very good price because they're selling a portfolio deal, so they know they've got to give a a bit of a discount on that. And uh, there are in the places we really like to buy, actually probably slightly better for the most part and also uh very well upkept you know it was 90 plus percent occupied very good work on the properties you know they're two-tone paint finished hardwood floors um you know very well upkept no, there are no no major foundation or structural problems you know the trees were trimmed away from the property so you have these massive limbs falling on it the previous owner had done a very good job of keeping up the properties and 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 keeping them performing this is not something that you know, I see very often in a portfolio and would make perfect sense with regards to our acquisition strategy. It's just financing this thing uh, at first, at least made, you know, we didn't see any way to do it. So I I just want to interrupt you right there real quick. You you said that your normal business strategy is to buy a house with a private loan, then fix it up and rent it out. But how do these align with what you previously do um, if it sounds like it's stabilized and there's no fix-up that's needed, which would be a challenge whenever you do the long-term debt on it. Basically, we are looking for some sort of value play, so to speak, some sort of way that make the properties uh, to buy properties at a discount or buy um, and get a you know a deal that has some equity built into it. Normally, you can't buy a house that's completely fixed up and and perfectly performing and all the rest for a discount because why would anyone, you know, they could just list it and sell it normally. I mean, there are exceptions to that if they are motivated for some reason or another. 
so generally our strategy when buying individually is to buy properties that are like REOs or, or something along those lines that, and also need a substantial amount of work. So there's a limited buyer pool and the seller is looking to get rid of it at a discount. But at the same time of portfolio, because there are very few buyers looking for massive, you know, large, I guess not massive, but large portfolios of houses, they generally come at a discount. And so basically the value play there was being able to purchase a large number of properties at the same time and make it so the seller didn't have to sell 97 individual houses, which would have been a process that would have been quite tedious, I think, to say the least. So the value play normally is to buy properties that require work to get up to par. The value play here was to buy a large portfolio at once. Okay. What were they marketing it at and how much was it worth you can either do full price or like on a per house basis it was marketed at six and a half million and we don't have appraisals on the properties but um they are worth more than that and the, the seller knew that i mean there was no mystery there is it, it was sold at a overall discount to basically make it so that buyers would be interested in buying such a large portfolio or to elicit interest in it but it was certainly something that, that made a lot of sense to us met our criteria. Really, the problem with this deal entirely is how do you finance something like this? Mm -hmm. That's okay. the challenge on multiple sides. Both, uh, it's not easy to find a bank who wants to loan on 97 houses, and it's not easy to find the 25% down to put on those either. So really, it's the whole amount can become quite challenging. Okay. I think the first key point that I would note to anyone is that it's it's really important whenever possible to meet with the seller. So I can't say for certain, I don't know what all of the, what the other interested parties did, but we right off the bat met with the seller, asked him, you know, to come to our office and sat down, kind of explained our business, explained what we've done before. We even gave him a brief introductory packet of, of information about our company and and had a good long conversation, talked to him about his company. You build some rapport and also show the seller that, yes, we are a legitimate buyer. We can do this. Basically, you, you elicit some confidence by, mm -hmm. by meeting with not just this, this anonymous person sending out offers from who knows where. Right. That was, I think, pretty important down the line. Our first offer was pretty low, as, oh, um, even despite the fact that we knew that this packages being sold at a discount to begin with, just because we were under the impression the only way we could elicit interest from some of the private sellers that we'd had before us to get, an, you know, just kind of an insane deal on the package. We didn't have a lot of hope up front. We only had one source that we knew that could do the equity portion. And basically what we were looking to do originally, our first plan, and these plans changed several times, but our first plan was a syndication. And what a syndication is, is when there's an active partner who gets the deal and usually manages the property or portfolio. It's usually done with um, apartments, but th there's an active partner. They might put in less, they might put in none. And then there's a passive partners that come in and they put in whatever amount, usually the majority or all of the down payment. And then they split the equity. So oftentimes like, Oh, I have friends who do this on apartment complex. They'll usually take, Somewhere between 15 and 35% of the deal, they'll give the rest to their investors, but they don't put anything down. Or if they do very, very little. Originally, when they first started, they always put nothing down. 
In fact, on one deal, they got such a ridiculously good deal. They actually bought a 96-unit apartment complex for $1.4 million, if you can believe that. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they got such a good deal that they actually took more than half of the property without putting a penny of their own money into it. You know, it just ranges by how much they, they are aiming for a certain return. So this was our first thought, and we really wanted to have half of the deal. So our thought was we'd put in a small percentage of the down payment. We get the majority from this guy we've used for loans before and, and done work with, and he's a very wealthy individual. And then we might give him a PREF. And what a PREF is, is it's kind of like an interest rate. So let's say they you give them a 5% PREF. It's like you're paying 5% on their money, and then you split whatever returns you have. Let's say it's a 50-50 partnership. So you give them 5% interest, and then whatever's left, you split half and half. Now, the thing about a PREF is if you don't make it up to five, like let's say you have a really low month, you only make up enough to pay them 3% on their money, then you'd only pay them the 3%. So that's the difference between a PREF and an interest rate. It's a preferred return. So that was our original thought, but that kind of went in circles, and we just couldn't come to terms with that particular individual. What, uh, what were they wanting? I think they wanted 50-50 and a 12% PREF or 30-70 and an 8% PREF. We just didn't think that that was worth our time to get involved with. That was just too much to stomach because if we're taking on a huge portfolio of properties, that's a major management burden to get such a small piece of it or have to pay. I mean, 12%, yeah, that's a pretty good return. You're basically going to be making nothing. You have the equity, but you're not going to be making any return on that for, for a long time. And then when they were talking about the 70-30 split in ownership, how much would you all have had to put in? of the overall money that was needed to close? I think at that point of the 70-30 split, I think it was actually they would be putting up all the down payment. Okay. And we were talking about putting up like 10% of the down payment. So 10% so would, to own 30. Yeah. I mean, it would certainly, well, it would be zero to 10%. I, I, I'm not 100% sure. We, we went through a lot of different options, but I believe that was that was at them putting up the entire down payment. And there are situations where that kind of thing would certainly make sense. I mean, if your goal is to buy large apartment complexes and you do this a lot, I mean, yeah, yeah, that certainly would be something to consider taking that kind of deal. But for us in that position, it was just like, this is going to make no money for us for a long, until we can refinance them out, until we can refinance the portfolio, say in five years, once we've paid down enough principal, hopefully there's been a little bit of appreciation. We have a little bit of equity to start with. We can refinance out their initial equity. That is probably one thing I should clarify about syndications and, and these types of partnerships. Let's say they put in 100% of the down payment, just to make it clear. If they put in 100% of the down payment and we split the equity 50-50, if we refinanced it out or we sold it, we wouldn't split, just split the, the proceeds 50-50. They would get all their down payment returned. Then we would split the proceeds 50-50. So their, their down payment is protected. And I should note one other thing. These are fairly complicated legal contracts. Syndications are almost always securities. So if you are going to get into a syndication, you definitely need to talk to an attorney. Certainly don't take this as a how to do a, uh, the legal side of a syndication. I mean, if anything, syndications, partnerships, what we're uh, the tenants in common agreements, which we'll get into shortly here, they're all uh, the great instruments and great things that I hope your audience thinks about with regards to potential acquisitions, but make sure to get a lawyer involved and go through it, the correct process. Yeah, so syndication didn't work. So now what? You know, we were kind of scratching our heads about what possibilities we had. The only option we had really for even financing was challenging because uh, 
you can't take this to a local bank and expect them to lend on a you know almost five million dollars. It's not not an easy thing to get them to say yes to. The best options we even had in that regard were like B2R and First Key, which are these large like hedge fund banks, you know, that have set up branches that loan specifically on portfolios of houses. They've done that actually relatively recently. It's a little bit higher rates than you're usually going to get. It's closer to 6% interest, but it was the best way we could do it. One of the things that when we presented our original offer, because the seller wanted all cash offer, and that wasn't really on the table either. When we presented our original offer, it was with financing. It became clear that the seller uh, was not interested in going through 97 separate appraisals. <laughs> that was not something that they wanted to try to arrange and go through. You never know what particular seller is, you know, what's important to them. It could be the price, it could be the terms, how quickly you close, how much of a hassle the closing is. And also, in this case, this is a large portfolio that the seller built up over a long time. And one of the important things to him was that the person that bought it was going to actually, you know, take care of it. I heard through the grapevine that one of our competitors was in another offer on the portfolio, was interested in trying to flip the portfolio, sell them individually. And that wasn't as interesting to the seller. So we had these <clears throat> these two angles. The fact that we were planning on holding them was a big advantage. And, he, and the seller really decided that between our offers, he liked us the most. And at that point, we sort of got a lifeline. The seller wanted to do a 1031, and a 1031 exchange is where you sell one property or a group of properties, and instead of paying the taxes on them, you defer them by taking all of those proceeds and putting them into another property. He was originally planning on doing that, but he thought eventually that, well, it's not that much of a difference if I just do seller financing, because I don't have to pay all those taxes immediately. It's prorated over time, and he's also making an interest rate. And so he actually proposed the idea of doing seller financing to us. So then comes our next idea. Our next idea is having a very high level of seller financing and seeing if he'll go up all the way to, uh, well, our first plan was go up all the way to 90% because we thought we could raise 10% with our own funds and also with maybe getting some private loans on other properties, things like that, other properties that we own. So that was the next strategy. So then came our attempt to persuade the seller to loan us not just 75%, which which he decided that was something he'd consider, but go up all the way to 90. So we met with him again. This would actually be the third time we met with him. Put together a large three-ring binder with all sorts of documents on our company. Uh, you know, We gave him financials on the company, uh, you know, history, breakdown, all sorts of stuff like that. To try to you know convince him that we might not be putting a huge amount down, but we are, you know, we've never missed a mortgage payment. And since we started way back in 1989, we have a good number of properties. We'll sign personal guarantees on everything else, yada, yada, yada. That, unfortunately, didn't work either. He was not interested in loaning any more than the 75%. So a try one down, try two down. Now we're on the third try. And our, our uh, the agent who brought us to us brought the third idea to him. He had just sold a commercial property that uh, a group of siblings had had for a long time, and they were looking to 1031. They first thought it looked interesting and then said, well, they can't do it because you have to 1031 from like to like. So you can't 1031 from a property into a partnership. Even though it's on a property, it's not considered the same legally speaking. Securities law is long and arduous and weird and all the rest. So 
At first, we thought that's not going to work. But then I remember that friend that I mentioned earlier who, had, who buys apartments had once called me about whether or not I knew of any apartments around town that, that might be interesting because he had a guy who was looking to play some 1031 money. And he just didn't have any, any properties to purchase right now, but he didn't have a lot of time and he wanted to see if there was something around. That kind of went nowhere, but that, that phone call kind of hit me. I remember him saying that. I'm like, well, why would he be saying? He, they always do partnerships. If you can't 1031 from a property into a partnership, then what was he doing? So I called him up. I'm like, so how do you do this? And he's like, what, it, what we did was a tenant in common agreement. Now, a tenant in common agreement sounds like, and this is getting legal and weird, but a tenant in common agreement, it sounds like a partnership. Because you're basically two, three, more people, whatever, are buying a property together. And they're splitting the income. So it's the same thing, right? But, well, it's not. I, I think the best way to think of it is like it is a partnership is a bowl of soup. You each own 50% of the soup. But how do you split it up, right? It's just one bowl of soup. You know, There's no delineation between the two. So basically, you each own 50% of every unit. You each own half of Every unit in the property, everything in the property, you own half of it. A tick or a tenant in common agreement is more like a loaf of bread where it's sliced down the middle. So you own half of the, uh, the loaf and the other person owns the other half of the loaf. And since it's a tenant in common agreement is not this, you're not, you're not selling a property and then buying this partnership, which is like uh, uh, you know, a different you know, a different type of legal instrument, different, different thing. You're basically, you're selling that property and then you're buying half for a third or, or, or a piece of another property. And because it, you're, you're not, it's not considered a, a partnership, it's like you're buying that half or that third, it's considered like to like. So all of a sudden that became a possibility. So we tried the partnership with some of the people we knew that didn't work. We tried the high leverage seller financing that didn't work. But now this third possibility of doing a tenant common agreement with somebody doing a 1031, all of a sudden that actually made sense. Huh? There you go. <laughs> and so how did you execute on the tenant in common agreement? Like what, 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 how, how, like real, really quickly, how did you propose that and what was the reception and then how, how did it unfold? We met with these, with, um, there are several siblings all over the country, one of them in Kansas City. And we met with them and, and went with them and kind of discussed the deal. And, and he thought it was very interesting. And, the, you know, they had this 1031 that they were, they were kind of, 1031 exchanges are brutal, just to, to tell you uh, if, if anyone's unaware of them. You have 45 days to select three potential properties, and then you have another, I think, 90 or 120 to close them. So you've got to select these properties very quickly and in the kansas city market especially for these type of commercial properties is extremely competitive right now uh the apartment market the the commercial the office market the, the retail market they're all they've all been on fire for a while and so having some trouble finding a potential property to, to transfer this money into and this this deal made a lot of sense to them so we met with them we talked to him we came to terms i, I don't want to get into any of this too detailed in the specifics of those, but we were able to come to terms that made sense for both of us. And at the same time, we had the seller financing lined up, which made it much easier on the financing side, because even though we had these options of going to like B2R, first key, that's a large transaction and not an easy thing to put together. So that made it a lot easier on that side. 
And at that point, we were able to, um, well, we, I guess there's one other thing. We had to come to a conclusion on how to, to do the due diligence with, with the seller who didn't want to go through 97 different properties. That, and I, as I stated in, uh, in our previous podcast, due diligence is extremely important. When you neglect it, you pay the price. So we kind of had to, we had, we, had a, we had a balancing act. How do we do the due diligence on these properties that we're almost positive we want to purchase without really going through each one individually? And the way we agreed upon doing it, aside by you know, anal, you know, doing comparative analysis on each property, analyzing, um, you know, creating a performa, analyzing the uh, any the operating statement that we had, was to drive by every single one, and then look at each turnover he had that came on. We looked at each one of those. He told us which two were the worst, and we looked at those. And I picked a handful of other ones just completely at random. And so it's the law of big numbers. If you can pick a handful here and there and just kind of randomly go to them, you should get a decent idea of the portfolio, especially if that's them looking at all of the exteriors. This is not my preference. My, I've, I've usually stressed look at every single unit. But since this was a this was you know a concern of the seller, and, and understandably so, I mean, that would have been a nightmare of due diligence. Um, it was the best solution that I think made sense in that respect, where if you can see... If, if you can't see all of them, make sure that what you're seeing is a random selection of them. That's how we did the due diligence part. And then the seller financing brought the, the financing part and sort of this, you know, half lucky, half, you know, opportunistic meeting with these, these guys who just sold this 1031 from our agent, who was very useful in this case, uh, that brought in the down payment and all these things came together. So to me, the moral of the story is it's sort of a combination luck and, and bad luck. Have, I mean, actually, there's a, there's a great book I'd recommend from Jim Collins called Great by Choice. And he talks about this concept called return on luck. And what he found, he looked at, I think, 15 companies that did really well in volatile times and 15 that didn't, like comparative companies. And what he found was both of them had good luck and bad luck at about the the same rate. Like the good com- the companies that did great in these volatile times and the companies that did badly. But what happened was the companies that did great were able to get a high return on luck. When something went right, they were able to take advantage of it. And you know, over the long course of most people's life, some I mean, sometimes there's you know catastrophic events or ridiculous luck. You win right. the lottery, for example. Um, but usually, most people are going to have some luck some bad luck. And the key is when you have good luck is to get a high return on that. And when you have bad luck to try to mitigate those losses. If I was to give one piece of advice overall, uh, you know, wouldn't it be the specifics of what a 1031 is, what a tick is, what a syndication is. Those are all important things to know and keep in your mind. Again, talk to your attorney first before doing any of these. The key is just to think creatively. Like if you know something's an opportunity, but you don't think you can do it, don't stop there. Don't, don't just give up. There are all sorts of different ways to do real estate deals, to do any sort of deals, and really think through your, your options. Talk to people, ask questions. You know, a lot of this came down to a couple phone calls off of random memories. Like I was about to give up on the whole angle of talking right. to these 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 guys who eventually became our not partners but tenants in common. But just the memory that oh yeah, I remember my friend mentioned this and I should give him a call. If there does appear to be a great opportunity, even if it doesn't seem like something you can do, I mean, it doesn't mean to jump out of your niche or do something crazy, but don't just give up on there. are all sorts of uh, creative ways in real estate to get deals done. Yeah. And I, I think also 
as you just said just a second ago, there are all sorts of ways to get deals done creatively. And uh, just hearing these three different approaches uh, will perhaps trigger something in a best ever listener's mind whenever they're coming across a similar scenario. Maybe it's not 97 units. Maybe it's three times as many units. Who knows? But just thinking through, okay, here are a couple options. It's very similar to how a um, a good uh, wholesaler or fix and flipper will always present like two or three options to the motivated seller based on what their goals are. I mean, same thing here. You've got to continually present different options that make sense for you as well as, and in this case, your new business partners. Um, and Our new business tenants in common. New business tenants in <laughs> common, whatever the hell that terminology is. Yeah, uh, yeah. New business tenants in common. I'm sure you have to say that for certain purposes. So <laughs> well, no. That, yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it, Andrew, but yeah. Well, the one other th- one other thing I would note is just with regards to seller financing, we asked that at the beginning too, if they'd have any interest in seller financing. And one thing I have noticed is the first time you ask a seller whether they'll have any interest in seller financing. They always say no, so don't don't that just because they said no, if uh, on regards to whether they're willing to sell their financing, don't assume that no will always be no. As the negotiation goes on, you know, bring it up again because oftentimes sellers will come around, especially once you after you've built some rapport with them. Thank you so much for being on the show, Andrew. And where can the listeners connect with you directly? Yeah, well, my pleasure. I appreciate being on again. Our website is stewardshipproperties.com, and I also have a blog at Bigger Pockets. If you go to Bigger Pockets, the RE News blog, just scroll down, and I'm one of the contributors, so you can check me out there as well. Awesome. Great catching up with you. Have a best ever weekend. Talk to you soon. You too, Joe. Thanks. If you're looking for a real estate brokerage that provides full-service commercial and residential property management, as well as traditional brokerage services, then contact James Wise and his company, the Holton Wise Property Group. Their website is holtonwise.com. That's H-O-L-T-O-N-W-I-S-E.com. They're based out of Cleveland, and they help local and out-of-state investors build and manage completely passive rental property portfolios.